Welcome along to Family and Friends, the weekly podcast from us here at Family Creative. We have a special episode for you this week, a new format on location. We'll be discussing a recent project using wild track and interviews from the places we visited and some of the people we met on the way. This episode we look at the feature length documentary we uh, produced last year for Patron Tequila in which we followed a handful of mixologists on their journey to the Patron Perfectionist competition. We learned their inspirations, processes, techniques, uh, visiting eight cities around the globe. I'm joined by my friend and director of the film, Neil Coffey. So Neil, when we look at the pre-production and the introduction of this project um, to yourself, um, you know, what were your initial thoughts uh, on the project when you when you saw the concept, the deck? Um, how did it make you feel? Was this something? Was this a kind of you know not project of a lifetime, but it, was it something you've been looking forward to maybe doing? Oh man, it was like yeah, uh, it came at a really good time for me. Like um, I'd really wanted to be doing a bit more documentary stuff, um, so that was like a bonus point for the job right off the bat. And then I'm a huge like I love like uh, parts unknown and like chefs tables and stuff. Like I'm at their chefs table. I'm a big like. Um, food and culture show fan uh and like even back to the days of ready steady cook you know is into that as well um so yeah the idea of getting to do uh, a show like that which was sort of um looking at food and drink um but then also like the the broader like uh cultural implications um of of bartending and stuff i think that was that was super exciting to me um I was also like pretty anxious about it as well because there wasn't a lot of lead time on it like uh, I think we only had like a couple weeks before we went away and it was obviously we were doing like so many people on the trot you know like um, it was like one day here two days there um, and without having like a lot of time to like uh, get in contact with the people beforehand that we were going to be seeing it was like it, a lot of it felt very flying by the seat of our pants you know um, and I think that was maybe good and bad like um the speed at which it happened i guess didn't give you too much time to really worry about it but also uh it didn't give you quite didn't give us quite as much time to be as planned uh as i'd like to have been for something like that and i think particularly having not done doco stuff for a little while before going into that as well um coming from like doing more sort of contenty and commercially stuff where like it's all about the plan and control and like um having a plan and executing that and you know pre-production being so important in those things it was definitely like stepping into um a different world but yeah i mean i was i was super 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 excited about it what were the sort of main things that really appealed to you about the 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 creative like what what got you excited the first tangible thing that really got me excited and really made me feel like um, I could understand a direction that we wanted to take this thing um, and like give it a bit of like a a point to it was when I read Alan's um, write up that he did about his drink um, for the for the competition. Um, and when I read his like, so his drink was all based around um, late nights with his grandfather basically so he had like goat's milk in there because that's what he would drink he had like the smell of this smoke um because his dad would smoke uh and there was chocolate in it because his dad would have chocolate or his grandfather sorry would have chocolate uh at night as well so that whole thing 
seeing how deeply he'd thought about this drink and how many like talking points there were based off of that um that was the first like tangible thing that got me really excited because i think when the job initially came it was it was sort of just to make a a show about bartenders in their cities and it um it didn't really seem like there was that much of a story to it or it it had the idea hadn't really been refined as to how do you make how do you make this an interesting film um so i think initially when it came it felt quite daunting so when i read his uh his write-up of the drink that he wanted to do that made me feel um like if everyone's drinks and everyone had thought that deeply about the drinks that they were going to be doing then it was going to be a really easy time because yeah i mean the drink he came up with it worked on like so many different levels you know it tasted great but the story behind it was um yeah it was really emotive and really personal to him um and it just like it just gave you so many talking points to to jump off from after just two weeks of pre-production we flew with a crew of four including myself to guadalajara for the first leg of the production First going to Guadalajara was was awesome. I'd actually been to Guadalajara many years before, and Guadalajara is quite small, or the city center of it at least feels quite small. So I felt like I actually had quite a good handle of, of the city, which I'm sure I don't. I just know, like, I just went to the same touristy bits, I guess, both times. But um, yeah, so going to Guadalajara, felt that was sort of a nice place to start because I felt like I had like a slight advantage over that city compared to the other ones that we hadn't been to uh and at least i knew like the layout of it a little bit and i sort of knew like where could go to get certain shots that i had in mind so that that was awesome um the crew that we did the job with was really interesting because it was a really big ambitious job but it wasn't like we had you know a load of money for the (laughs) the necessarily the roles that we needed to actually be filling you know so i think you were filling in doing sound in a lot of places and um you know we had an ac and we had a dp um and like you said you'd you'd never met them and everything but i felt um like i'd worked with andy before and i'd felt really confident with with going and doing this job with andy because uh, i know that andy's like a guy that that pitches in and I think also when you're doing a doco thing like this, the days can be really long. And especially when you're coming from more of like a, a commercially or contenty background, it's a very different type of day. And you need to, you're sort of on all day and it's not just your 10 plus one, you know. Um, and I think a lot of things are asked of you that aren't normally asked of you on sort of more commercial or, or contenty shoots. Um, and so I felt really confident in suggesting Dan when Andy couldn't go and do the job because I know Dan is a a really good DP, but B is also um, he understands how to work in within like limitations and parameters set by uh, by budgets and you know by creative limitations. Uh, he knows how to work well with within those and how to get the best out of um, out of a situation that you're being put into. So I felt really confident doing doing that with him. And I'd only met Alex, the AC, a couple times before, or once or twice before. And yeah, I mean, he was a legend. Like, uh, he's just such a nice guy. And yeah, the way the, the four of us clicked from the get-go, I think was just 
it felt like it sort of had to be that crew. I don't think you could have put any C, any AC or any DP or any producer into that situation, um, and they'd have enjoyed it necessarily. So I think the crew that we had with it was uh, they were they brought their talents, but then they also brought like a vibe and a, and a chilledness and a relaxation to it. Um, that I think that job really needed, you know. How did you find the crew? How was it for you? Because <laughs> I feel like you had, uh, at least we still each had like a set role on it. I felt like you were really a middleman in the whole thing because you were having to do sound as well. So you were very much involved in in the crew, but then you're also very much involved in the politics around it as like a classic producer role. So yeah, how was it for you? It was it was exciting. Um, I mean, the sound thing could be kind of frustrating sometimes uh, because it's it's a it's a big undertaking. You cannot you can't half ass it, um, and it's it's a, it's a lot of pressure. Uh, I remember after I think it might have been our first day filming, I was trying to get the audio off of our recording device, and um, I for about a forty minutes I thought I deleted everything. <laughs> So I was, I was just walking up and down in my hotel room being like, shit, 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 shit. Um, you kept that pretty quiet. Was, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, of course, but you would. Um, but uh, yeah, it was. It just turned out as in some weird folder on the device. So I managed to find it eventually. Um, the production side was, was fun. It was really good. Um, just figuring out where to go, uh, talking to our, our uh, contestants and kind of getting information off them doing research online in the morning figuring out what's going to be a fun place to go um all of this kind of stuff um i mean in terms of like finding locations and stuff that was that was really enjoyable in the morning so i'd literally sit there um in the breakfast bar in the hotel with my laptop and i'd just you know, figure out, you know, what, what we we're doing that day and kind of come up with a schedule, get the transport booked in, kind of brief you guys in when you came down for breakfast, like half an hour later or something. And, and then it'd just be, the, you know, the four of us and, and a driver, um, Jesus, uh, would jump in the van and head on out. Um, it was, it was amazing. I mean, to, to walk into locations like, uh, the Mercado Libertad, um, with a with a film crew um you're kind of you're a bit apprehensive because we've all heard things about mexico right um and we're walking around with expensive equipment uh so you kind of don't really know what to expect but everyone was super welcoming across the board in mexico like everyone was happy to see us there was never any never any sort of qualms with us filming things and as a producer that's quite often your biggest headache is permissions or people just telling you to don't film me or or all this kind of stuff or just being very sensitive to to permits and all this kind of stuff and that was just never an issue it was just super fluid really easy going obviously one of the main themes on any sort of uh, any film to do with cocktails and and mixology and in fresh ingredients we're always going to end up in markets the first of which was as uh, previously mentioned the the mercado libertad in in guadalajara talk to us about that market it was just incredible it was so vibrant in terms of look 
and feel like you know there were all these kids scuttling around it uh it didn't feel like a market that i'd ever been to before it was the first point that i really felt on the trip like i was seeing something new and you know when you step into a place like that as well um there's there's so many things you want to just like point the camera and look at and i think that's sort of uh one of the impulses you have when you're sort of just the the overall like essence and vibe of a place just uh just like slaps you in the face you know and like you sort of get there and you're a bit awestruck by uh how different it feels and how vibrant it is um and yeah just trying to capture that and and get that across in the most tangible and like authentic manner was a really fun thing to try to do you know is how how do i translate this like very tangible feeling that i have uh when stepping into a place like this how do i translate that like visually and i think particularly because we weren't doing like any interviews with anyone there or anything you know it was it very much had to be a how do we get the vibe of this place across um just just visually and like you know with a little bit of um a little bit of like wild track you know um so yeah i mean that that was one that again was one of the first times um that I felt so sort of like reading Alan's write up of that drink was one of the first times I felt like, Oh, there's, there's authenticity in this documentary. And then, um, when we went there, um, to that market, that was the first time I felt like, Oh, like we've got a, a visual authenticity to like, uh, try to translate here as well. If that makes sense. That was the first sort of time that we, I felt like we'd stepped out of, um, the film making process, you know, and we were just out in Mexico, uh, trying to translate what we were seeing. That evening, we went to an authentic, legitimate Mexican cantina. Um, and I'd, I'd kind of heard about them. Um, but, I mean, in terms of, like, uh, experiencing, you know, real culture uh, that was amazing it was just full of local people everyone just relaxed there was nothing on the walls there was just a bar in the corner selling beer or tequila there was a, a band in the corner playing some pretty weird music um, and everyone in there was just super relaxed no problems with us filming waving at the camera like I mean again like it was I think that that was really sort of genuine. Uh, how pleased were you with that kind of that portion of, of what we filmed that day? Oh man, that that was amazing. Like to me, that was the first place we'd gone to that sort of uh, encapsulated a lot of the things that we'd been told about uh, Mexico's drinking and like tequila culture. That was the first time that uh, we'd actually seen that in in practice, I guess. And it was like the the broad cross section of like demographic that you had there was was amazing like you had i don't know like young like 18 year old guys there right up to like 78 year old uh women and they were all just like on the same level um quite like rambunctious all of them i think particularly that like 70 year old uh 78 year old woman or whatever she she seemed to think that dan was some like big shot um filmmaker from somewhere and she'd known him from something and i think she grabbed him and and, and kissed him at one point and yeah i mean just like being there was was amazing you know you could make like a whole documentary just about that bar that we went to and the people in it like um 
And it was sort of a shame that we couldn't feature them more and use them more. And I, I think it's just when you start to like, uh, when you go to a place like that and you start to meet these characters, you just want to know more and more about them. And without having more time to sort of delve into that place and that story, um, I think it would have been hard to feature them too much because I think he would have just wanted to see more and more of that. But again, that was sort of like going to the market, man. It was just this, uh, the music, the like, the, the look of the place, the, the hustle and bustle of it, it was just this like, it was an assault on the senses again, you know, and, and trying to translate that in the best way possible um, to people like viewing it at home who can't be there and stuff was, um, was yeah, was, was really fun and again, I think challenging, you know, it's, it's, I think it's a really interesting thing trying to, because it's not just how it looks, is it? It's like the sound of it that's there and everything and, the, and, and the, the, the snippets of conversations that you hear with people and the like the the passing conversation that you'll have with someone or just like the the looks that you give each other when you're like uh when you're passing each other to get past the table or something you know it was just this yeah this lovely like friendly fun vibe and again it 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 was it felt new to me as well i felt like i hadn't really been in, in a bar like that you know it didn't feel like going into a bar in london in in any way shape or form you know after three days in guadalajara it was time to head to the hills of jalisco the home of Patron Tequila, the Hacienda. Talk us through our sort of our first day arriving at the Hacienda. Well, our first few days uh, at the Hacienda, um, the people we met and your thoughts narratively and all this kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, the Hacienda was cool in certain ways. Like, it was great to see um, the bartenders and everything in their element. And it was also great to see, like, the camaraderie between them as well. For something which was, like, supposed to be a competition, the support that all of them were giving each other and the, um, the very, like, sort of familial vibes that you had between a bunch of people who had never really met each other. That was awesome to see, and that was... Uh, very encouraging to see as well because I felt like that would give us a good through line um, throughout the documentary and trying to connect these these people because they all did seem they all seemed like from very different backgrounds but there seemed to be a lot of commonalities between them as well um, so that was really nice to see but like as a I was quite conflicted with the hacienda if I'm honest like uh, it felt particularly having come from Guadalajara and like those you know that market that we went to and the the bar that we were just talking about uh, which were like full of culture and felt very authentic and everything going to the hacienda was this like really big opulent like um estate um in the middle of jalisco you know and it um it felt a little bit like an all-inclusive hotel like s smacked in the middle of uh, uh of this place and um it felt like sort of the antithesis in a lot of ways of what we were trying to channel in Guadalajara. When you'd go around and you'd speak to like the people that worked there and everything, they were all incredibly positive about working for Patron and everything. And um, they seemed to, they seemed to really not only value their jobs, but I think they felt like they were valued as well. But there was an element of that that I couldn't really 
figure quite how genuine that was, how much of that was just sort of lip service to their employers uh, and how much of that uh, was genuine, I guess. Um, so I think like the people that we met there were amazing, but um, as a part of the documentary, it wasn't really the best backdrop for trying to tell um, like a cultural story about Mexico. It was kind of personified in our interview with the head of production, uh, a guy called Antonio. Roll camera, please. Camera rolling. Marking. Tequila is one of the most important exports of Mexico. And besides the economical part, it's about the pride that we feel when tequila is going all over the world. It is very important for Mexico to have a sustainable Now, we'd heard about this guy. He's a bit of a unicorn. You know, everyone was like, oh, you know, Antonio, he's, he speaks amazingly. You guys are so lucky. Why, you got an interview with Antonio? Oh, my, oh my God. Like, so we were like, whoa, this is, this is going to... This is going to be some some pretty epic content. Like, wow. We managed to get him down for... They gave us half an hour. We ended up interviewing him for an hour and a half. Um, but from the off, it was so clear that every answer he gave, you may as well have been reading it out of a pamphlet. There was no... There was not, none of his personality in there. It, I felt like I was reading the about section on the website. It was so deflating, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, I felt that very much. And it, I feel like he was sort of a mirror image of the Hacienda. It was like he was a PR spiel and it felt like the Hacienda was a bit of a PR spiel. And it, I thought that was a shame because he was such a lovely guy and he did he did seem to have a genuine love for tequila and... Um, and he didn't, he seemed to also be quite a conscious person as well. You know, he, he seemed quite conscious about not trying to take advantage of the situation that he'd found himself in. Um, but yeah, it just came, the things that you were saying just came across. Yeah, so inauthentic. And as you were saying, like sort of a, P, it, it felt like a PR spiel, you know, it um, felt like very scripted answers. And um and I think that was really frustrating as well because I think we were sort of hoping that he would be the voice of Patron in explaining why not only they're putting this documentary together, but why they do this competition every year and why like the um, why the network of bartenders is so important to them and why doing something like this is important to them other than just uh, advertising their product, you know. And it sort of seemed in the run-up to it that there was a lot of good intention behind the things that they were trying to do. But when it actually came to them verbalizing it, they, they really seemed to struggle um, with that. And I think I think we really spent quite a lot of time trying to, trying to help them with that and trying to get them to... Um, to say these things in sort of a like digestible manner that we could put into the film and everything. But it, yeah, it just didn't, um, it didn't come across as genuine. And I, yeah, I didn't know how to make him sound more genuine or how to, and I didn't want to feed him the, the answers for it. Cause that also felt sort of disingenuous as well. Um, I didn't want to like feed him the answers that I thought he should be giving us. Um, but yeah, so I think that was, again, another bit of a, a, a disappointment for me. Um, and it was, it was just, it just sort of represented the colliding of those two worlds, didn't it? Of us trying to uh, tell this cultural story against like the backdrop of Mexico and then also having to sort of tick a, a PR box for Patron a little bit. And it, yeah, I think 
it felt like in that interview is those two worlds colliding in perhaps the not <laughs> in not like the most pleasing manner. One of the things we did whilst staying uh, near the Patron Hacienda was getting up at 4.30 in the morning for a sunrise agave harvest. Try and take yourself back to that morning, uh, getting out of bed when it's still dark. Going and actually seeing the harvesting of the agave was uh, was awesome. Like it's such a picturesque landscape, so it obviously looked great on camera and everything. And seeing the work that those guys do um, was was pretty incredible. And seeing the speed and efficiency with which they do it was amazing. Um, but again, I, I wish with that we could have been sort of a bit more of a fly on the wall, um, following them through their morning routines. Um, but we sort of, we weren't really allowed to do that. We were given one of the guys to sort of um, create a journey. You know, he came to the hotel that we were staying at and everything, uh, or the ranch that we were staying at, and we were told to sort of try to make um, make that look like his house and make it look like he was waking up in the morning there and, and doing his journey to the agave fields. And um, that, again, felt a little disingenuous as well. Um, I think particularly because I don't think I don't think he that guy really knew what, was, <laughs> what he'd been asked to do before he came down as well. Um, so I think his acting chops were like really being put to the test, and I felt <laughs> and with the language barrier as well, I felt incredibly sorry for that guy because not only was he having to act for us, he also did actually genuinely have to get to the fields to like do his day of work as well. Um, so I felt very, very sorry for that guy because we were definitely slowing him down. <laughs> like, can we stop here to get a shot of this? And can we stop here to get a shot of this? And, you know, he's got a quota to make in the day. Um, but, yeah, I, I mean, again, like, seeing that in practice was another very, like, uh, I don't know, humbling experience in a lot of ways. Having spent five days at the Hacienda, making use of some of the time to get to know our subjects and learn more about the history of tequila in Mexico, it was time to begin our journey documenting our mixologists, beginning with Alan Suarez in Mexico City. Whilst we're at the Hacienda, the sort of contestants or you know they did the the competition we we had our winners we had our losers um all the while we kind of utilized the time to get to know some of the people that we were going to be following over the next uh what three weeks which was actually quite valuable because the more we spoke to them we more the more we learned uh about their processes their history what they're passionate about which in turn gave us so much ammunition um in terms of going and, and having a plan when we when we would go and visit them after the competition uh, and do these kind of uh, these backstories um, the first backstory we shot after we left the the, the hacienda mexico city with alan suarez um, fantastic guy just so friendly could not do enough for you this was our first city in which we were solely there just to capture the kind of 
episodical documentary format with these participants um how excited were you at this point uh and i mean what what did mexico city hold buzzing at this point because i'd never been to mexico city um and pretty much from the second you land in mexico city it feels so different than anywhere i'd been before it's so big and it's so sprawling and uh as we got further to the center as well like from sort of every two blocks i felt like architecturally the place looked so different as well um so on like a purely selfish level for that i was incredibly excited because i didn't yeah i'd never never been there before and, and that was amazing but um having spoken and met alan at the hacienda and everything as well i mean i was so excited to film him because he's just such like uh um a thoughtful guy and he's got such an interesting life and so above just being accommodating and really wanting to he really wanted to help and he was really invested in the in helping us make the documentary but i think the most important thing with him was was he was really invested in the concept of the whole thing alan's bar was a place called hanky panky um now i've done some research on on the venue obviously um but there wasn't really much online. There was just uh, it said um, what's that? Uh, it it was a speakeasy, um, and I was like, well, this is an interesting concept because there's never been prohibition in Mexico. Why would someone make a speakeasy? What's the point? Um, and those are the questions running through my head until we actually got there. Uh, on the outside, it was just this weird kind of takeaway that looked quite shabby um and basically there's a secret entrance that they take you through you go through this curtain and it opens up into this amazing like red velvet everything's covered in just adorned beautifully cozy uh, amazing liquors on the on the wall like the highest quality of alcohol and cocktails and music and, and people and it was this secret society uh hidden hidden from the world i mean talk to us uh, about like trying to trying to capture something like that on camera is not not easy because we weren't actually allowed to film the, the the secret entrance we weren't allowed to film the dud entrance it was it's yeah it was an incredible experience that that was amazing going there I, I i think i'd had similar reservations to you before i thought like speakeasy i think particularly coming from london the idea of like a speakeasy is like insanely gimmicky and um yeah it didn't really excite me you know i thought <laughs> i thought it was gonna be like a london sort of speak where it's a speakeasy but it's not a speakeasy really because everyone knows where it is and how to get into it and and all that but this was not that, you know, like they'd even explained to me what it was. And still, when I got there, I was when they showed us the initial like shop front, I was like, this, this can't be right, Max. This is, you know, like it had lulled me fully into the false sense of security that you're supposed to be lulled into. And then so then when Alan was like, yeah, yeah, come. And he took us through the kitchen and everything and through this tiny hallway and then through those curtains. It was just this like, yeah, peeking behind the 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 red curtain like it was it was incredible it was just this revealing of this yeah incredibly opulent space behind this like super um 
super shitty looking <laughs> facade on the out front uh and it, yeah it was it was amazing and uh it was a real shame that we weren't really we weren't really allowed to show that sort of journey because they do really want to keep it uh, a secret uh, and they're very genuine in that so we weren't really so i think we did our best to try to translate that like uh the sense of Oh, this the sense of walking into something that you're not expecting. So we were able to do that by like seeing a tiny little bit of the of the shitty hallway in the kitchen that he walked through just before he got in and everything. Um, but it was a real shame we couldn't show you like the the true like <laughs> the true shittiness of <laughs> of that shop front and then like the juxtaposition of that and then what was behind it. Um, but yeah, that place was amazing, man. And I think the other thing with that as well was. Um, the people that Alan worked with and that whole crew there, they genuinely yeah. really felt like a family. Like my way of thinking of Hanky Panky is more like a school. Like I, I want to develop like good paternals, like then there'll be like Brandon Bassarans and Ronda Oil. And I want them to, to tell like, oh, I learned everything from Hanky. I think it's like a break point. Like, like bartendership in Mexico is like a, kind of like a new thing, like from the past 10 years. It's not the same as in the US or the UK. And we take things seriously and we want to make things like the best way it's possible. So that's why we really care about like showing people and learning the way it has to be. And the most important thing is like, there's no like hospitality culture in Mexico. Like everyone loved Mexicans, but they're cool and like, but, but industry-wise, it's really hard. To it really was this um, independent thing that they were doing completely on their own, on their own terms, their rules. Um, you know, they, they didn't really give a shit about like uh, how they came across or anything. They were like, you know, this is, this is what Hanky Panky is um, and this is what we're going to give you. And yeah, and I mean, I think... I think they were quite reticent about having like a film crew in there as well because it sort of goes against the whole um, the whole thing that they're trying to do, you know. Um, but in the end, having Alan to like, uh, having already been with Alan, and I think Alan had a sense that we weren't trying to, um, we wouldn't take advantage of that place and we wouldn't try to portray it in a light that they wouldn't be happy with. And I think telling them that they could see everything that we did before it went out so that they could make sure that they were happy that we weren't giving too much of the shtick away or anything like that. I think that put them at ease. And then, uh, yeah, so then them letting us in and have the access that we had in there to a place which is supposed to be so insanely private um, felt very lucky and very fortunate. And again, I think that was that perhaps would not have happened had the crew that we'd been with been different, I think, because we were a small crew and because we were all very much on the same level and all very respectful, you know, and um, or did our best to be very respectful. Um, I think that helped us a lot, you know. It wasn't like uh, we were going to go in there and be this big, huge film crew. We were going to try to be as small as possible and just be flies on the wall, and yeah. But a la vez... Me enseñó mucho. Me enseñó que, que es parte de lo que se debería hacer. Our last day in Mexico City, uh, and sort of the pinnacle in terms of capturing Alan's uh, story and, and his motives when, when you know, competing in a competition on a global level. We met his father, um, who didn't, it didn't speak any English. 
but the conversation Alan and his dad had about Alan's grandfather we had no idea what they were saying yet we kind of did there was it was quite powerful and and, and emotional uh and at one point you know his dad actually kind of cracked and like you know he he is you know kind of like crying for for a minute there uh and just kind of like not crying but choked up about talking about how proud he is of his son and how proud his father would have been of his grandson no te compres cualquier pantalón cómprate uno que te que se realmente valga la pena porque lo que haces vale la pena así es It was interesting to see because none of us really speak too much Spanish and yet we kind of knew that it was a really special moment. Um, and what were your thoughts on that? Yeah, man, I think that's exactly correct. E even though you couldn't understand what was being said the whole time, um, you could feel that like you were being, you were seeing a really special moment. It was all like Laura was there translating for us and it almost even felt like at the end of that conversation you didn't even need the translation you know you could just feel um that there'd been this sort of uh great emotional exchange between the two of them um and yeah i mean what was interesting about that was as well as like alan was saying that actually his dad is like pretty stoic in general <laughs> and so the fact that he cried on camera i think was um was quite a big deal to alan and but i, I you know i think that's testament to um again to like the thought and that Alan put into that drink, you know, it wasn't just like this lip service thing that he was doing to try to win a, a competition. Like he, the, the drink that he was making, it really was like a homage to his grandfather who he misses. And so I think seeing him relay that to his dad, it like, it really underscored the authenticity of that, you know, because uh, every element of it, there was a reason that it was in there and it was a reason which was so intrinsically linked with his like childhood and his memories so i think um i think him sharing that with his dad was quite an emotional thing for the two of them um and i think what was really interesting about that as well there's a moment in it where alan says do you think that granddad would be proud of me even even though all i do is make drinks I think his dad's response to that was like so telling and so beautiful because he was like he said that of course he'd be proud of you because you've chosen your own path and you're 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 shooting for excellence in the thing that you've chosen to do and the thing that you've chosen to do might not necessarily be the most trodden path but it's your path and um and he'd be very proud of you like making something out of nothing and you know you you being your own boss and the captain of your own ship sort of thing. Um, and so, like, yeah, I mean, I think that was an amazing thing to capture, but it wasn't like we did anything amazing to capture that, you know? We were just <laughs> there to capture it. Um, it was that whole thing transpired because Alan had a great story, which, uh, which was rooted in his family life. So like the obvious thing was to try to get him to talk about that with a member of his family. And then just being there to watch that exchange happen and, and capture that, that was like, that was all we did, you know, like that was the, the whole, <laughs> the whole beauty of that whole scene stems from Alan and Alan having this, this idea and this drink and this, uh, this depth to him. Um, and, 
yeah, which transcends like just a cocktail, you know. After an encouraging start to the biographical portion of our film, it was time to head to our second destination, Nashville, Tennessee, to visit Sarah Turbot. Music City, what were your expectations flying in to, uh, to Nashville? Yeah, I mean, so I'd heard obviously so much about Nashville. And I, when I told people I was going to Nashville as well, a lot of people were like, oh, you're going to love Nashville. Nashville's amazing. And I'm like, I'm very into my music in general and stuff. So I, w- I, was, I was very excited about, about that. Um, Nashville as a whole, <laughs> I don't know if we just didn't have enough time there. Um, or we just got taken to the more touristy trap areas, but we went to Broadway, which is like the big, um, the big street where they've got like all the old, all the country bars and stuff. And that just felt like, I don't know, like Disneyland on crack to me with Sweet Home Alabama playing in four slightly different places, slightly out of sync with each other with like, uh, old American mom, like vomiting at your feet. (laughs) It, It was uh especially coming from like uh from mexico city broadway anyway felt like the the opposite of culture you know it felt like uh just this strip where you'd put a lot of flashing lights and loud music and and tried to pass it off as culture um and yeah so i mean i was <laughs> i didn't really like that element of nashville that i mean i'm not to say that nashville is a bad place i feel like just like that one area for me is just like a, a bit too much um but um but what i w- really was excited about in nashville was um after having spoken to sarah was sort of trying to look at the parallels in creativity between being a bartender and being a musician um because obviously Nashville is renowned for its music, um, but Sarah, who is in the competition and representing Nashville, um, not only is she a top bartender, but she's also this amazing violin player. Um, so having spoken to her at the Hacienda and everything, we sort of honed in on that being the angle that we were going to look at when we went to Nashville was this uh, intrinsic link between creativity and making drinks and and music and how a lot of those personality traits of musicians and bartenders uh are very similar in the sense that you're you have to be quite self-motivated self-disciplined um that sort of (laughs) the mixing of like uh, i guess art and commerce i mean i think that's the thing that i realized from (laughs) from this is that making a cocktail there is really like without sounding uh yeah there is an art an art to it you know um and when you meet someone like sarah or alan um you realize that there is a lot of uh, there is a lot of creativity that goes into a thing like that and i think that was a thing that i gave food and chefs credit for but for some reason in my mind up until doing this uh, uh cocktail makers hadn't uh i didn't see the creativity in the same 
in the same way, I think. And I think definitely going to Nashville and speaking to Sarah and everything, that definitely made me feel different about that. And it made me feel that there is an intense amount of creativity that goes into into coming up with a cocktail recipe. And I think the parallels between um, musicians and cocktail makers are, are plentiful. One of the places I found online and did some research on and, and reached out to was Third and Lindsay. Uh, which is a country bar in south, was it? No, it's the north side of Nashville. Um, they've been going for quite a long time. I thought I, I reached out to a few places, and, and like and quite a few didn't really get back to me. Uh, maybe they weren't too keen on the idea of having a massive uh, a documentary crew just like coming in. Um, but these guys, they said, uh, "Well, how many of you are there?" And I said, "Well, four. And they said, "Well." You are, we, we, we can get two of you in so okay cool right well let's all go anyway because uh, I don't mind buying a ticket and you know chilling out whatever we show up and the guy on the door is like you guys are video you, you're video dudes right they're like yeah 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 he's like well come on in literally took us straight through like the the four of us Sarah and um, and Lara from the agency straight through to the green room we all had a drink in our hands. They just like just gave us whatever we wanted. Um, uh, the the venue was amazing. You had live live country music on on the stage. Um, it was quite nicely lit. The big crowds, really busy, really buzzy. Um, and we met Rick Rick Huckabee um, in in the green room, the sort of unofficial mayor of Nashville. Okay, you got uh, My name is Rick Huckabee. I'm a singer-songwriter, guitar player here in Nashville. Uh, I moved here in 1996, and I've been here ever since doing what I do, man. I'm here at 3rd and Lindsley tonight, which is my personal favorite place to play uh, because it caters to true artists. It was always like that back in the day. I used to come here in the, in the late 90s when I moved here before it expanded and all that stuff. And uh, it's still what it was then. It really caters to the Rick was just a legend on so many levels. Um, yeah, I mean, when you meet a, someone like that who is just such a character, you know, like, um, you obviously get excited to get that guy on camera. Um, and I think particularly because he uh, he represented uh, a lot of the things that we were trying to talk about um, in in that episode of the documentary. Um, you know, he <laughs> he had obviously been in Nashville for a very long time. It was obviously like a, a cornerstone of the music scene there. Um, so, yeah, I mean having that that guy be the spokesperson for for your city uh yeah i mean you can't really go wrong if there was a royal family of america i would suggest making um rick huckabee the monarch for sure <laughs> he was a, he was just a, a legend and just such a good ambassador for um for nashville um and i think like also because he was slightly older and had been there for so long hearing um hearing how Nashville had changed to him over the time and what Nashville represented to him. There's like a gravitas, I guess, that came with that, which I guess you don't really get from someone younger like Sarah, you know, when you're talking to like an old guy, who, an older guy, sorry, Rick, uh, who who you can see has like, just from speaking to him for a second, is see has lived a rich life. To hear his take on what Nashville has been like over the last like, 30 years as opposed to the last like five or 10 is very interesting and then 
hearing someone who comes across as such you're like your your quintessential like Nashville musician hearing his opinions on um on the parallels between like cocktail making and and, and music um was I think it reinforced that idea even more and it made it I think it made us a lot more com- confident that um going for that angle in nashville was a good thing to do basically because rick huckabee agreed <laughs> that like that it was a good that it was a good point to be making um and that it wasn't devoid of any truth of we're stepping up our food game here and our our, uh, our hotel game and cocktail game as you mentioned as well so i think all those elements together along with the music part of it which has always been here they're kind of working together now my theory is that some of the best bartenders and cocktail makers in this town are the best songwriters and best musicians in this town. You mentioned Broadway earlier, and yeah, I think you're right. It was. I mean, in your notes, I see it is the Disneyland, isn't it? It's it's all the neon signs. It's it's just all the kind of touristy things. Um, on the flip side, Princess Alley, um, which is quite a historical, it's an alleyway in Nashville, but it has these amazing jazz bars and like this the the vibe and just the the style of music and it, it's all kind of where the cool people hang out uh, like, I mean talk to us uh, about you know discovering venues like that it felt like on uh, on Broadway it was like spider webs with twinkling lights that were just trying to like attract people in and then once you got there it was just like get them in and get their money uh, and then we'll just like smash music as loud as possible in their faces and they'll just like drink until they don't really realize <laughs> what's going on. Whereas uh, Third and Lindsay and Printer's Alley, they felt much more like um, considered establishments, if that makes sense. Like they'd put them here to be like, come here and make this place your local that you go to uh, on like a weekly basis. You know, it didn't feel like so much of a tourist trap. It didn't feel like just twinkly lights trying to attract someone in. It felt like actually when you went into these places, they actually had some substance and had, uh, yeah, like had had a vibe which wasn't just about like getting you through the door and selling you an expensive beer. It was about like, it was, you could tell that they were actually trying to cultivate uh, a, a little bit of culture there, you know, particularly in Printer's Alley where it was, you know, this whole street which... Um, it didn't feel like a small Broadway, you know, it felt like it was trying to be a reaction to Broadway in its own way, you know. Um, but then also like it's, I don't know, it, like the whole thing sort of underscored how young a country America is in general to me. Like, cause even Printer's Alley, it, it definitely felt more genuine and everything, but 
it also still felt like it was sort of pasted in the middle of this city. And I think that's what's so weird about um, certain cities in America is that you just feel like there's there's culture on like one street and then like the next three streets, it's just like uh, office buildings. And then another street, they've tried to create like, um, yeah, a bit of vibe and culture there as well. But it's it's almost feels like they're randomly pasted in different points of the city. Um, and so that was a bit weird about Printer's Alley to me. It felt like it, it sort of comes out of nowhere and then it disappears into nowhere. You know, it is literally that street and then there's there's nothing else that you, there's no other establishments for a good, like, I don't know, like 10 minute walk until you get to Broadway. Um, so yeah, I think it was definitely a nice antidote to what we'd seen on Broadway. My name is Sarah Turbot, and I am the bar manager at Oak Steakhouse, and I also bartend at the Beer Cellar. Sarah, when we met her at the Hacienda, we could tell she's very articulate. Um, I think she'd kind of we we had the outline of of her her drink and her story and all this kind of stuff, but it was only when we actually spent some time with her that we actually realised, you know, how articulate, how intelligent she was, and like how involved she was as well like she she lived the lifestyle not only was she a bartender in you know quite a fancy steak restaurant downtown she was also uh she's also like a, a bartender at this dive bar uh the beer cellar um uptown which was literally smoke inside you order a jack and they give you four fingers and it's like four like five dollars how pleasing is it and and how easy does it make your job as a director when you have someone like that who just almost kind of knows she knows exactly what you want her to say i mean is is that a good thing is it a bad thing or what do you think how did you feel it's a good and a bad thing i think um I think Sarah was very considered and she um, she obviously was very accommodating to us as well and she um, she really put a lot into the into the story um, but I think with Sarah as well she is there was almost this element of it, it felt like she'd been media trained a little bit you know she was she was almost too good in a lot of ways um, so I think with someone like that it's um, it's trying to make I'm not saying that what she was saying wasn't genuine. I think everything she said was very genuine and came from the heart. But I think sometimes with people like that, it's hard to um, for that to come across as entirely genuine all the time, especially if you don't know the person. So I think that was the only challenge with Sarah was um, was trying to get her to be articulate as as articulate as she is, but making sure that she was coming across like genuine and real. Um, and I think when you've got someone like Sarah, who's so up for giving you so much of her time and talking to you sort of about anything. Um, I think it's, yeah, it's just 
about trying to um trying to make her feel as relaxed as possible and all like it's such a cliche but like trying to make her feel like the camera is off you know and like you're not um not playing to the camera you're just um you're just saying what you feel I think and I think um yeah that was a that I think that was the only challenge with 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 her and I think Sarah's like actual story around her drink um with all respect to her wasn't as strong as like Alan's story around his drink you know but uh I think ultimately for us that was a good thing because what Sarah actually brought was Sarah was so involved in the Nashville community you know we wouldn't have gotten into third and Lindsay if we hadn't been with I mean not to rag on your beautiful producing skills but I don't think I don't think we would have gotten into third and Lindsay had we not uh had like the cosine of, of Sarah you know um so yeah I mean I think I think what we didn't get from her in the um in the story around her drink we really got in her as being like an ambassador for Nashville and understanding that city and like the heartbeat of that city and what makes it tick and everything and what makes it go round she understood that Having left Music City, we travelled to Paris, Porto, Palermo and finally Tel Aviv. After three and a half weeks on the road, the fatigue was beginning to set in somewhat, but the culture in Israel spurred us on. With one last city to capture, our last four days on the road proved to be some of the best. By this time, we'd sort of been on the road for three and a half weeks. Um, I think we were pretty tired, um, but Tel Aviv, it was an interesting place. I mean, I, I had no idea what to expect, if I'm honest, but as soon as we got there, again, there was that, that rush of excitement because everything is so different. And it just I think it gave us a bit of a third or fourth wind at that point and just it you know rejuvenated us and walking around the walking around the alleys at night and that first night just dropping our stuff in in the airbnb and sitting in that bar across the road like it's just it was just a completely different experience um what what were your expectations coming into tel aviv uh how excited were you yeah i mean i didn't really know what to expect just like you i'd never been to that part of the world um so yeah i didn't really know what to expect um I th I think part of me was I was either expecting it to be a lot more cosmopolitan or a lot less cosmopolitan. I didn't expect it to sort of um, like sort of where we were. The it was a lot of like I don't know. I don't want to. It didn't. It wasn't the the buildings felt like quite makeshift where we were. You know, there was a lot of like uh, just two poles put up and then like a tarp over it uh, with some nice lights around it and everything. But that felt like very vibrant and like that was their city in the area that we were in anyway um 
yeah, I mean, I didn't know what to expect from it, but I think it, you're right. It definitely gave us like a second win and I, a second wind. And I certainly wasn't expecting like the food to be the food there to be my favorite food of the whole trip. And like the food in Tel Aviv was just amazing. Like it was incredible. But I also wasn't expecting it to be as expensive as it was. Like I think that was the most expensive city we went in, we got to. Um, and then Johanan also telling us that, um, you know, you don't get uh, tips. There, oh no you don't get paid as a as a waiter or a waitress there you don't get like a salary you just survive off tips there and also that like the rents there are insane like even compared to london um like the spaces that you're getting there for the money are tiny like it really seems like you have to be swimming in money to be able to live in in tel aviv which i i re that i wasn't expecting that I think one of the main focal points for Johanan's kind of a drink was the Carmel market, which is a quite a long market uh, in in central Tel Aviv. Um, I mean, we'd been to a lot of markets by that point, you know, all around the world, and this one, it was. It was different again, wasn't it? It was, it was. It's a, it's an internationally known spice market. So you've got people from all over the world living, working there, selling spices from all over the world. Um, I mean, in terms of like vibrancy and, uh, you know, in inspirational content, that that was really exciting. You know, for me personally. I mean, did you feel the same way? I think it was amazing how excited you could get by. a market in every city you know and how different each of those markets felt like that i think that was quite surprising to me that like uh yeah i can very clearly picture each of the markets in my head of the of the cities that we went to and they all feel very different they feel more different than i think the bars feel to me i think some of the bars blend blend a little more into one in my head but the markets <laughs> for some reason uh they definitely all felt very unique to one another and carmel market it was much longer. It was less sprawling in the sense that it was like it, it, it didn't go multiple blocks over. It just seemed to be like one really long street with a couple little bits like coming off of it. Um, and it felt probably the most hustly and bustly. It felt like, you know, going into a, into a rushing river and it would just like move you along when you, when you step down into it. And I think uh, trying to capture that is is quite a hard thing because like in order to feel that you've sort of got to be in in and, in and amongst it and uh, in and amongst all the crowds like that and moving with that and trying to trying to translate that sort of hustle and bustle of it, which the the hustle and bustling in that market was definitely way more palpable than it was in any of the other places. Everything was rushing and it was louder and there was more food and there was everyone was much more like garrulous in general and like it was this yeah uh, louder and exciting and um, and I hope we managed to like uh, to capture that. I think for me as well that was one of the harder ones to try to translate what we were seeing and what we were feeling to um to film um and to the to the story that we were trying to tell um it just because of the shape of it it was less like obviously photogenic um so yeah i think we just had to be a little bit more creative with how we like sort of uh tried to translate the vibe of that place a good mojito 
Why do you think the cocktail scene has exploded so much in the last 10 years? First of all, Tel Aviv is a very cosmopolitan city and Tel Aviv and Israel like to uh, travel abroad. Uh, it's very hard to buy an apartment in Tel Aviv or apartment in Israel, so what you do with your spare money is usually you drink, uh, you eat, you sleep, buy drugs, have sex. So the bar scene in Tel Aviv was pretty surprising. Uh, it's one of the only places in the Middle East where you can legally go out and drink. Um, but I was kind of bowled over by the amount of, of bars and, and clubs there. And the international um, sort of uh, vari variation and representation of the people that work in the industry there, people from all over the world, which is really nice to see, actually. Um it was a it was a very free mentality. Um, you know, people go there to live, and and they they live quite passionately. Um, talk to us about some of the people we met. Uh, was there anyone that, in, that sticks out in your memory? I think in general the international feel of that. I think loads of big cities love to say that they're these really international feeling cities, and they're these like cultural melting pots. Um, and I think oftentimes when you're actually on the ground, that isn't uh, as palpable as perhaps it is in a, in a city's bio. And I think like, uh, I think cultures are often compartmentalized within a city, you know, and it's often not quite the melting pot that, um, that people would love to claim their city is. But um, Tel Aviv felt it did feel insanely international in that literally, you'd You'd speak to one person and they'd be from France. You'd speak to the next person and they'd be from Germany. You'd speak to the next person and they'd, they'd actually be from Israel. And then, um, you know, everyone that you were, they, it didn't seem like you were talking to someone from the same nationality from person to person. So it really, really did feel like a, a melting pot. I'm Yochanan Mikhailov. I'm from Israel and I'm a bartender. I'm a bartender at the Bushwick Cocktail Bar in the center of Tel Aviv. Before we wrap up, um, let's just quickly uh, mention Yochanan because, I mean, he's a pretty complex dude. Uh, he's a trained trained physicist um, that really came across in his craft when, when sort of making and designing these drinks. Um, I mean, it just kind of... Tell, tell people about about him his character his the way he, even the way he kind of spoke uh, you know is such an interesting and, and deep guy interesting and deep i think are very good adject adjectives for him um and very considered as well like i think he's a very he takes things very seriously johanan you know uh and there's a discipline to him that I think was more palpable than with any of the other people that we that we'd sort of met, and I think that came from his sort of scientific background. You know, he approached uh, making the drinks that he was making from uh, from a very scientific background, and like there was definitely a lot of chemistry going on in there and things. And he was taking a lot of the things that he knew from that world and translating them um, into into his cocktail making. Um, yeah, I really like, he reminded me a lot of Dan, the DP, because Dan was also a physicist, I believe. He, he did, did something, some, I'm pretty sure he was a physicist in a former life. Um, and it's just one of those guys who you're just like, fuck, you are smart. And like, 
you could sort of turn your hand to doing anything that you want to do really can't you um and you'd probably excel at it and that was just what you felt from johan and he just felt like this insanely smart guy who could sort of do anything that he wanted to turn his mind to i mean he he had like a little production company going as well and he directed some some films before and stuff and they were pretty fucking good so like i mean i think he there were definitely parts with him where i was like you don't think we know what we're doing do you johanan you're not you're not impressed by how much we're flying by the seat of our pants are you uh, so he was he was really nice and he was uh he was really different to the other guys. Yeah. Like, like I say, considered. And, um, I think with, with bartending, there's a huge, like, I don't know, social element to it. So most of them are like very garrulous people who, who know how to hold a conversation really well and, and, and seem to enjoy, um, being the center of attention or being, uh, yeah, maybe not being the center of attention, but being a focal point, they don't, don't seem to mind, mind it. You know, none of them seem to mind the cameras. Um, Johanan was a bit different than that, you know. Johanan, <laughs> Johanan felt like he was trying to do—he was just trying to do his thing to the highest standard that he could do. And if there was a film crew there that wanted to film him do it, yeah, great, whatever. I'm just gonna like—I'm just gonna keep excelling at trying to do the thing that I'm doing the best. Um, and he seemed sort of like singularly focused in that manner. And like, I, yeah, I don't know. I re I really respected that. Um, and like, yeah, I, yeah, I feel like I. I could relate quite a lot to his want to try to like uh, control uh, the thing that he'd chosen to do the best he could and trying to be like the best version of himself at doing that thing, you know, like, uh, yeah, I, yeah, I, I liked Johanan a lot and uh, yeah, I don't know, <laughs> I don't know if he liked us so much, <laughs> but I, I, defi I definitely really liked Johanan and I really liked his brazen attitude towards everything you know he didn't like sugarcoat anything and i really liked that you know that was he'd, <laughs> he'd say like oh should we maybe go and film this here and be like nah that that shit let's not do that and you're just like yeah cool i mean that i mean when you when you're doing a thing like this with such little pre-production and stuff and you're you're sort of bouncing off the subject of it with for them to just shut something down like that now that's a terrible idea um is quite refreshing because also you're like, well, yeah, you do know your city better and you, you should know the story that you're, that you're trying to tell probably better than, than us for, you know, despite as much research as we could try to do for it. Um, I think like you're always going to know, Johanan was always going to know that city better than us. And he's obviously always going to know uh, the story behind him better than us. So I think his, his willingness to tell us when we were barking up the wrong tree um, was quite helpful. Mate, I'm going to ask you just one one question in way of a, a conclusion. Um, what did you come away with after this project? I came away learning so many things from doing this project. Um, it was like such a big one for me to do. Um, in terms of scope, in terms of the amount of people we were seeing, in terms of the final deliverable at the end. I think for all of us, it was like a really, really big project that we were, um, that we all had to like hustle extra hard to make as, as good as we could. Um, and like, I'm incredibly, incredibly, incredibly proud of, um, of, 
of some of the episodes that we did like they're some of my favorite things that we've we've ever shot in like brutal honesty i think like some of them didn't work as well as others um i think that's all that's always going to be the case when you have such little pre-production time to be chatting with these people and getting a sense of who they are and what they're going to bring to the stories that you're trying to tell and everything i think um without really being able to have those conversations like i said before you're so much at the will of that person and it will live or die in on what that person is putting into a thing like that because it's hard to guide them too much um so i think um i think there's definitely elements of it i would like to i could be improved um but like i think in general uh, I find it hard to be proud of things that like I make anyway in general or that I'm involved in making um, so I think the fact that I'm proud of uh, you know a huge chunk of this film it like uh, yeah I, I know that for me anyway I, like it is a genuine sense of pride like and I think like one of the big things it taught me is when because I was quite anxious about going into it like I say because of we didn't have much lead time into it and coming from uh, uh, worlds where you're, you're controlling as much as possible before you go into it I think it taught me to like roll with the punches a little bit more um, and taught me to uh, particularly when you're doing a thing like this that sometimes um, you need to be open to the plan that you had changing and that uh, perhaps what the what this person is suggesting to you your, your subject is suggesting to you maybe that's not what you thought you uh, what you thought you were going to be looking at when you when you met them and everything but that you need to really be malleable and you need to really be open to to following those people to where they want to take you um and, and it's just up to you to like sort of give them the a rundown of what you're trying to do and what you're trying to achieve um and really trying to relay to them um, what you need from them in order to try to tell that story and then sort of trusting those people to take you to where to to the best uh, sort of talking points to tell that story thanks a lot Neil uh, it was an absolute pleasure having you on, on the job uh, we had an amazing time and thanks for talking to us today as well literally any time That's it for this week and this episode of On Location. I really hope you've enjoyed this episode of what will hopefully be a regular segment here at Family and Friends. As ever, I'm your grateful host and resident producer, Maxi. Please subscribe for all future contents and check us out on Instagram for some bonus content as well. Until next time.